Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to have you here. I, I wanted to, to start uh, this morning by, um, I really want to appreciate Jesse. His sermon a few weeks ago uh, was very inspiring to me. If you'll remember, he, he talked about Psalm 3, which was inspiring. He also cast part of the vision that we want people to, um, to catch, and that's it being part of small groups, whether the grace groups or D groups or, or rooted, which we'll be announcing in a week or two that's going to start. Uh, that was inspiring to me. But the, the thing that was really inspiring to me about Jesse's sermon is the walk-up music that Jesse had. That really got me to thinking, and I, and I thought it might be appropriate if I had some walk-up music. And I didn't want to be pretentious about it, uh, so I asked the elders to pick some walk-up music, walk music for me uh, this morning. So uh, as I walk up, the stage we'll we'll play the music and we'll get ready and get inspired so <laughs> that didn't work i'm gonna have to talk with the elders why don't you open your Bibles or your apps to Psalm 6? I want to start by this morning by talking about some of the features of Psalm 6, some of the things that stand out about it before we actually get into the text. But uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and thank you for your time here with us. And your time here with us is all the time. You're in us and you're among us, and we appreciate your presence. And ask, Lord, that we would honor your presence this morning, that uh, what is spoken here will be what you want to be spoken, and that what is spoken, Father, will penetrate our hearts and our minds and enable us to become uh, more like you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. First thing about Psalm 6 that you'll notice, and I'm sure if you've read it or you've just read Psalms in general, is that there's a phrase that's used, and it's called, How Long? How Long, O Lord? That's used a lot in the Psalms. Uh, and it's used at least uh, a dozen times in the Psalms. And in Psalm 13, it's used four times in the first two verses. I want to look at that for a moment. Psalm 13, 1, 1 and 2. How Long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We quickly see that how long used in the Psalms like this is a cry, and it's often a desperate cry. It's a cry to God to, to save or to, 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 to deliver, to remember or renew, to restore, or simply for God to make himself known. And I would suggest that while it is a cry, it is a cry of faith. Second thing I want you to notice about Psalm 6 is that that's a lament psalm or a complaint psalm. And there are many of these types of psalms uh, in the book. David's deeply troubled at his condition, and he's asking God, really complaining to God, and asking him to deliver him. And another feature of this psalm, as in many, many psalms, is a literary technique called parallelism. Parallelism is a literary technique where the first line of a verse or a stanza is essentially repeated 
in the second line or verse to emphasize or to strengthen the thought that's trying to be established. An example that we might relate to is something like this. The phone was ringing, the dishes were washing, and the dinner was burning. That Each one of those phrases by themselves communicates something. When you put all three together, it communicates there's chaos in your house. <clears throat> that's parallelism. Verse 1 in Psalm 6 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Paul, or, uh, David is saying two things that are really the same thing because he wants to emphasize that. And that's, as I said, present in many, many psalms. It's present in Proverbs. It's present even in some of the Hebrew prose. The structure of this psalm is called a strophe, and that simply means that the, uh, the lines of the psalm are grouped together in thematic units. Verse 1 through 3 could be titled a plea for mercy. Verse 4 and 5 could be titled an appeal to God's love. Verse 6 and 7 could be appeal to personal remorse. And verses 8 through 10 could be hope for deliverance. But the point is, is that these units are all thematically linked. Strophe is what that's called. And then there's this superscription. I'm sure you've noticed when you've read Psalms that some Psalms have this line or this set of instructions at the beginning of the psalm. We call it a, a superscription. And usually in, in your Bibles, it's, um, the type is set differently. Perhaps it's capitals or perhaps in italics, italic, italics or, or something like that. Uh, and it, the, the superscription is an instruction. It's an instruction how to play the psalm, how to play the music of the psalm. Or it might be a, uh, a note about the incident that the psalm is about. Sometimes it's both. Not all psalms have superscriptions, but today's psalm does. And in fact, it says to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, the psalm of David. Sheminith means eighth. One of the things about the superscriptions is that sometimes they use Hebrew words that we're not really familiar with. So sometimes we don't really know exactly what's being referred to. Sheminith is one of those words. It means eighth. It could mean that it's to be played on an eight-stringed instrument. It could be a reference uh, to the tempo or the style of music. We're not entirely sure uh, which it is. <clears throat> and some people ask, uh, well, is that part of Scripture? Is that part of the inspired writings of the psalm? And the answer to that, the best answer to that that I can give you is that uh, the Hebrews thought so. In Hebrew Bibles, very often you'll see superscriptions not set apart from the rest of the psalm, but you'll see it as either part of the first verse or the first verse itself. So, yes, it is part of the inspired scripture. And then finally, some have suggested that Psalms 3 through 6 are all about David's experiences with Absalom. We know that Psalm 3 is. The superscription tells us that. We don't know that for certain uh, with the rest of those, uh, Psalms 4, 5, and 6. But as you read the Psalms, it, it, it makes sense that it could be that. And for our purposes this morning, that's how we'll approach Psalm 6, that this is David talking in part about some of his experiences with Absalom. So let's go ahead and read it. Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? 
Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Rather than taking this by each thematic unit or verse by verse, I want to kind of jump around and point out four things about this psalm. First is David's condition. David speaks a lot uh, about his condition in this psalm. And in verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Languishing here means what it sounds like. It means frail or faint or weak. When we're under pressure, when we're undergoing some trial, we often find a kind of a fragility in our life, a weakness. It's an exhaustion. And it, but David understands that while this is an exhaustion, David understands that God's hand is in it. Also in verse 2, he says, for my bones are troubled. He says, heal me, Lord, for my bones are troubled. The word trouble there means terrified. You could also uh, translate it to be out of one's senses. This is a kind of fear, a kind of terror that leads to a feeling of being out of control, unable to deal with what's going on. And he feels it in his bones. Some people have suggested that um, this verse indicates that David is talking about an illness or a sickness that he's dealing with. I don't think that's the case. <clears throat> he, uh, he uses similar language elsewhere. In Psalm 32, for example, uh, verses 3 and 4, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In Psalm 32, David is uh, talking about when he hid his sin and the sin he was hiding from God. Not that you could hide your sin from God, but what he was trying to hide from God was his sin of adultery and murder. And he says here, when I was, hi when I was hiding it, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. <clears throat> the kind of um, fear that sometimes we encounter because we aren't confessing our sin to God can have a, what feels like a physical component. For David, it was a, he felt like his bones were being wasted away. So I think this is not a psalm of talking about illness, but a psalm of talking about David's sin. And, of course, his sin that we're dealing with would be the sin in his uh, relationship with Absalom. I won't go over that again. Uh, Caleb did a very good job of uh, covering that. But it has both spiritual and physical components to it. In verse 3, David says, My soul also is greatly troubled. Thank you. My soul is troubled. The word troubled is the same word he used in verse 2. In verse 2, it means terrified. David experiences a terror that, or a fear that has both a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. And it affects his whole being. And David says in the very next sentence, but you, O Lord, David can't finish the sentence. He is so troubled, he's so bedeviled, I guess, by what's going on, that he can't finish the sentence. It almost sounds like he was going to say something like, but you, 
Lord, why did you abandon me? But you, Lord, why did you cause this to happen? But you, Lord, why are you doing this to me? But he doesn't, he can't get that out. He says, but you, oh Lord, how long? He just couldn't finish it. And so he just cries out, how long, oh Lord? Have you cried out, how long, oh Lord? I imagine as we go through this psalm, you might have some memories that are triggered by what we talk about and by what David uh, relates here. I think most of us probably have had time in our lives when we cried out, how long, O Lord? And then in verse 4, more about his condition. He says, turn, Lord, deliver my life for the sake of your steadfast love. David's life was under threat. We'll see in a little bit, in a little bit here uh, that he has some enemies. I think those enemies are Absalom, Absalom and his men. And I, David is on the run from Absalom, uh, and he's at a point where he feels like his life is in danger. As Caleb said a couple of times, David is used to running, used to being on the run, and he's on the run now from his son. He's afraid of his life, for his life. So he's weak, both spiritually, he's weak physically, and he's facing death. And then there's more. Verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my, drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David's weeping almost uncontrollably. He speaks of being unable to sleep. He's exhausted by his constant moaning. Does this trigger memories in you? Have you had times in your life where it seemed like all you could do was cry? That you're exhausted by your dealing with whatever issue is, is going on in your life? Perhaps it's a diagnosis of cancer or perhaps an impending divorce or some financial disaster. Perhaps a child has embraced sin. Perhaps the death of a deeply loved family member. Perhaps just the realization that there's a certain sin in your life. If you know these things, you probably know, probably understand what David's saying about his condition. And in verse 7 there, he says that he is weeping. And he says that his eye is wasting away because of grief. Grief indicates here that David is aware of his sin. He knows what's going on. And again, note here that he says um, that his eye wastes away. Not eyes, but eyes, singular. And that suggests that, again, this is not a, a physical illness, or he's not suggesting that David's losing his eyesight, but he's suggesting that David's in a position where he can't do anything else. Perhaps the best way to say it is not so much that he in an inability of, uh, to do something, but that there's nothing left to do. I've shared um, this before in, in other contexts and with other groups, and I won't take a lot of time to talk about it here, but Nancy and I had a time like this. We had a time of financial disaster. Um, and if you've ever experienced anything like that, you know you get to the point where there's just nothing left. You can't do anything. You can't, there's no steps you can take. And it's, it's, it's exhausting. Perhaps you've, you're familiar with something like that. David is weak because of his foes. 
He looks forward. He, he's, he understands that there's sin in his life that he has to deal with. He understands that uh, at the same time, it's, he has foes, Absalom, and his men who are after him. Perhaps death is imminent. And David says, I'm weak. I can't do anything else. And I would suggest that the discipline that God has brought on David's life is Absalom. Absalom and his sons. David does talk about discipline. And the second thing I want to talk about this morning. In verse 1 he says again, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Note here that David does not ask to not be disciplined. He asked God not to discipline him in his wrath or in his anger. The Hebrew word for discipline here includes the idea of punishment. But it also includes the idea that this discipline has a goal. It's a goal for correction or to take a warning or to teach or to catch in the sense that to stop somebody from going too far. It seems that David understands what God has proposed or purposed, I should say, in the discipline of his people, in his own discipline. Jeremiah understands this. In chapter 30, verse 11, Jeremiah says, quoting God, For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end to all the nations among whom I scattered you. But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Deuteronomy also understands this. God says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because the New Testament talks about discipline, even discipline for sin. Hebrews 12 talks about it. I have a long passage here. I guess I'm not going to read the whole, the whole passage, but the writer of Hebrews says, in, in, in chapter 11, I showed you all the people who... Uh, display great faith. And he says, I want you to get rid of all the weight of sin and everything that encumbers you. I want you to lay it aside. I want you to look at Jesus, who's our example. And Jesus, of course, did not sin, but his example was that he endured the cross for what was before him. And then he says, you haven't, uh, in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet even shed blood. And then in verse 5, he says, This is uh, Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In verse 10, talking about fathers who discipline their sons. For they discipline us for a short time, as it seems best to them. But he, he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So yeah, God does discipline us for our sin, and the reason he does is to get sin out of us. The purpose of such discipline is that we would share in his holiness and that the discipline would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He disciplines us because he loves us. Now, let me say at this point that if you are undergoing something, uh, or perhaps you have undergone something, some trial or something else, I'm not suggesting that every trial, every uh, hard time is because of sin. Uh, I think God deals with our sin in gentle ways most of the time. And God makes us aware aware of our sin, and we confess it, and it's dealt with. 
So, but on occasion, we get a little stubborn, like David did with his sin of adultery and murder. He got stubborn. He tried to hide it. <clears throat> and it caused God to discipline him, and it was, it was hard on him. Most of the time, that's not the case for us, though. If you're going through a trial or some difficulty, it probably is not because of sin. It might be, but it probably isn't. But if it is... <clears throat> God will let you know what that sin is, and all you need to do is pray, as, as David did in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. If you ask God to reveal your sin to you, he will, which is a blessing because then you can confess it. But there's another type of discipline in the New Testament that's not a discipline for sin, but rather a kind of discipline to see the depth of your faith. It's what we often call trials. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus went through testing. And in fact, after Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, just a few days before his arrest, crucifixion, and trial, he actually alludes to Psalm 6-3, almost quoting it directly, talking about his time of testing. In John 12:27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. That's almost a direct quote from Psalm 6-3. And what shall I say? He says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Third thing I want to talk about this morning is that David prays. And he asked God for quite a lot. In verses 1 through 3, he asked God not to rebuke him. He asked God not to discipline him. He asked God to be gracious to him. He asked God to heal him. And he just cries out, Oh Lord, how long? We've already seen that David has prayed that God would not discipline David in his anger. Jeremiah prays the same thing for the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 10.24, Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. In verse 2, David David, uh, prays to God that he would be gracious to him and then to heal him. Heal there could be translated restore. David is asking for God's mercy. He's asking for God's grace in this thing that he's going through. He recognizes that he can't resist God's discipline unless God gives mercy. He can't endure God's discipline unless God gives mercy. David's experience in confessing his sin results in that the discipline for the sin ends. Look at Psalm 32.5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Understand here that confession of sin releases one from God's discipline. If God's disciplining you because of sin, once you confess it, you acknowledge that God is right about it. You acknowledge that you that you sinned against God. The discipline will end. Now, the consequences of your sin may not end. Some of the consequences of your sin may not be uh, mitigated. But the discipline will. In David's case, he was still dealing with Absalom. And I I would suggest that while David doesn't record it, 
I would suggest that in, it's within these first verses of Psalm 6 that David did confess his sin. But he bows before God to ask him for mercy. In verses 4, 4 and 5, David prays for his life. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Turn here. When he says, turn, O Lord, he's asking God to turn back to him, to remove the threat that he's facing. David has prayed for mercy, forgiveness, and now he prays for deliverance. God always extends forgiveness immediately to those who believe in him and ask for it. In fact, asking forgiveness for forgiveness is really more an act of receiving forgiveness. Our sin has already been punished on the cross. <laughs> when we confess our sin to God, we're receiving the forgiveness that he's already offered. But concerning deliverance, God will always deliver his people. God will always deliver his people. But the deliverance we pay for may not come as we would like or when we would like. And David is confident in his prayer for two reasons. Look again. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. That's the first reason. The Hebrew word is hesed. Caleb mentioned this uh, last week. The word is used 245 times in the Old Testament. More than half, 127 times it's used in the Psalms. And while hesed is sometimes used with man as a subject, that is, a man, for example, might have hesed, uh, steadfast love for his family, or hesed for poor people, or hesed toward others, its overwhelming use is of God toward his people. It is a covenantal term where God is the giver of hesed without regard to the willingness of his people to receive hesed. The book of Judges uh, in the Old Testament is... Um, it's a depressing book. Except for God's work in the book, uh, it's a hard book to go through. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, what you, what you will know is that it's a pattern where the uh, Israelis uh, start chasing after other gods. And in, in discipline, God brings a nation to them to, to challenge them and to, uh, to uh, defeat them. And then while that's going on, the people realize their sin, and they go, God, please forgive us. God, please deliver us from this, this nation who's, who's uh, defeating us. And then God raises up a judge. He raises up someone that, he, that, that God uses to lead against the offending nation and uh, to defeat them. And the people rejoice when that happens. And they praise God, and they follow God for a while. And then they go back to chasing other gods. And the pattern repeats all the time. But that is an illustration of God's hesed. Even though his people don't always want to receive it, he still gives it. The word is variously translated kindness, loyalty, mercy, faithfulness, everlasting faithfulness, loyal love, which is my favorite way to translate it, steadfast love, and unfailing love. Psalm 36 has 26 verses in it. Psalm 36 uses hesed 26 times. In the first three verses in Psalm 136, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loyal love, his hesed, endures. Give thanks to the God of God, for his loyal love, his hesed, endures. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for his hesed, endures. And that's the other feature of God's hesed, is that it endures. It's also translated uh, everlasting faithfulness. 
And hesed is used in Exodus 34, 6, the kind of the foundational statement in the Old Testament scriptures about God's character. And I'd like to show a video here that uh, we saw several months ago about Exodus 34, 6, and about, in this case, hesed. So I'd like to go ahead and show it again. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently describe God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asks God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course, he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist. It's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then 26 times repeats, His chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, 
God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal love. It's good that uh, God has chesed toward us. Second reason that David believes that God is going to answer his prayers and found there in uh, in verse five, he says, "For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol, who will give you praise." And at first reading, you might look at that and go, "Well, that sounds a little bit like David's kind of being manipulative toward God. God, if you kill me, if I die, who's going to be around to praise you? You got to keep me around so I so you can get praise from me, David." I don't think that's what's going on here. I think David is overwhelmed that God has forgiven him. He's overwhelmed that God has done all these things for him, and he wants to praise God. He wants the opportunity to worship and to praise God. At the end of Psalm 32, which is that psalm about David's Uh, adultery and murder he talks about the people who are forgiven in god and in verse 11 he says be glad in the lord and rejoice O righteous and shout for joy all you upright in heart it's the thing that we want to do when god has forgiven us it's the thing we want to do when god has delivered us has delivered us we want to praise and i think that's what david meant when he said that hezekiah understood this in isaiah 38 Hezekiah says, For Sheol doesn't thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, and then he repeats that. He says, The living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. And there's two things about prayer that are not directly related to Psalm 6 that I think are important. And we could spend weeks on on prayer, but there's two things I want you to, to understand about prayer. First thing I want you to understand is that prayer God regards your prayer as incense. God regards your prayer as incense. Revelation eight, three and four. Another angel came and stood before the altar or at the altar with a golden censer, censers a bowl. And he was given much incense to offer with all the prayers, or excuse me, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of this angel. They took this censer with incense as as if they put the prayers of the saints in it, and the smoke from the incense rose up before God. The Bible uses the term sweet-swelling aroma. It's fragrant to God. He loves your prayers. 
He loves for you to pray. Even if you don't pray so good. Uh, even if you're distracted in prayer. Uh, this thought occurred to me even this week as I was praying about the sermon and about writing it and delivering it and studying a course of it. And, and I would pray, God, you know, God, you know, show me your word. Show me how you want me to, to share your word. God, give me the, the words uh, when I speak. And as I'm praying that, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. I'm thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this first. I'm going to do this second while I'm praying, you know. But God's okay with that. He still loves the prayer. Second thing is that God acts on your prayer. Daniel 10.10 And behold, a hand touched me and and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Uh, The background here is that that Daniel understood that uh, the exile in Babylon would soon be lifted, that the Israelites would soon be be, uh, permitted to go back to Israel. And he became aware of this, and he became concerned because he wanted to know what the future of Israel would be. He wanted to know the future history of Israel, and so he started praying. And the Bible says earlier, before this passage, that David prayed, prayed for three weeks for this, and it was an exhausting time for him. And in verse 12 it says, Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words had been heard, and I have come because of your words. The passage goes on to talk about a spiritual battle that prevented the angel from getting to, to Daniel right away. In fact, the spiritual battle lasted 21 days, the three weeks that David prayed. The point I want you to get from this is when we pray faithfully, God acts. God acts on their prayers. The incense of your prayer, God acts on when you pray. Now, it's hard for us to see sometimes, maybe a lot of times, that God is acting. We don't, we don't have the spiritual eyes to see sometimes what God is doing, but you can be confident in the fact that God acts when you pray may not be in the time you desire or in the way you desire or even not even a way you understand, but God acts. Isaiah agrees. Isaiah 65, 24. Before they even call out, I will respond. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Your incense of prayer goes up to God and he acts on it immediately. And the fourth thing I want to highlight here is that God answers. In verses 8 through 10, Ten, uh, David says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is a dramatic shift in tone and language in this psalm. In the first seven verses, David's complaining. He's crying out to God. He's praying for mercy. And then all of a sudden, in verse 8, something's changed. David has become aware that God has is, is answered his prayer. And the parallelism here in verses 8 and 9 is striking. Listen, the Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. The Lord accepts my prayer. Let me say that again. The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. The Lord accepts my prayer. David wants to really get us get the point across to us that 
He knows God answered him. And David knows that God is going to defeat his enemies at a point when he had nothing left to do. How God, or how David knew this, he doesn't say. We don't know if perhaps God commuted in some way verbally to him, or perhaps David heard God's voice in his heart, or maybe David just came to the conclusion based on his experience with God and his knowledge of God that he just knew that God would deliver him. And the language there in that verse suggests that the uh, defeat of his enemies wasn't present, but it was future. We don't know how far in the future it was. It could be a week, a month, a year. We don't know that. Some translations translate uh, verse 10 by saying, uh, my enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled. So how David knew God was going to do this, we don't know. When this would happen, we don't know. But David was supremely confident. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this passage, says, This sudden access of confidence found in almost every supplicant psalm is most telling evidence of an answering touch from God. So what do we do with this? I suggest four things. If you're, And let me make a prediction here. I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I think I can make an accurate prediction. You will, you, all of us, either have been through a trial, are enduring a trial now, or will endure a trial. If you are, or if you will, I would suggest the following applications. First, pray. Pray some more. Remember that God covets your prayers. God enjoys your prayers as he would enjoy incense. He loves to hear you pray. <clears throat> so pray and pray some more. And remember that God acts on your prayers. God hears your prayers and he acts on them. So pray, even if you don't see the answers or the answers don't come when you want them. Pray. If you're going through something and you may be thinking, oh, I wonder if there's some sin going on here that needs to be confessed. Pray to God. Ask him to reveal any sin that's there. And when he reveals it, confess it. God wants you to know if there's some sin that you haven't confessed, if there's some sin blocking your relationship with God, God wants you to know that so you can take care of it. So when you pray, he'll reveal it to you. And if there is no unconfessed sin, as I think is probably the case in most trials, ask God what he wants to develop in you. He may not directly reveal that to you, at least not all at once. But trust that he will make use of that trial to draw you closer to him, to make you more like Jesus Christ, to make you more steadfast in your confidence in God. And then finally, know and trust that God will deliver at the right time and in the right way. I want to finish by relating a story of a pastor by the name of Don Baker. He's a Baptist pastor. Uh, I did some Googling on him and found out that he died two years ago. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Psalms, this briefly talks about the experience of Pastor Baker. And Boyce says that Pastor Baker experienced a severe depression. He spent months in therapy and soul-searching and spent time hospitalized for the depression. Nothing worked. One day he was by himself near a lake where his family had a cottage. He had been praying for a long time and with many tears. And here is what happened in Pastor Baker's words. I continued to kneel by that couch long after the tears had dried, 
and after the prayer was finished. I noticed as I remained there that things felt different. Nothing ecstatic or noisy, nothing high-powered or sensational. I just felt different. As I examined that feeling, I became aware of strength in my limbs, of objects before my eyes. I saw, I felt, I heard. Was it possible? Was the cloud finally gone? Had my world come alive again? I stood and moved carefully at first. The feeling, the sensations, the awareness, the strength. Was it real? Was it back to stay? I began thanking and praising God, singing and laughing. Put in my shoes and ran down the hillside, more falling than running from the cabin to where carpenters were building a new dining hall. One of my deacons was there. I shouted to him, Jerry, I'm all right. Thank you for praying. Jerry looked bewildered and unbelieving. He needed time, but eventually he too would rejoice at the reality of what had finally come full circle. I continued to walk with vigor for the full three miles around the lake. I sang, I cried, I laughed, I prayed, I quoted scripture. I talked to the birds. I talked to the trees. To this day, I'm grateful no one saw me. I would have been shipped back to Ward 7E for sure. Boyce concludes, is this exceptional? Perhaps, but nevertheless real. It is what happens for those who turn back to God because he is still there. He is always there, even though for a time we may not be aware of it. Let's pray. Father God, we don't want to go through trials. They're hard, and they hurt, and they're painful. They bring agony. God, we realize that going through trials is necessary and useful for us. Sometimes, Father, it's a way for you to discipline us to get some sin out of our lives. Most times, I think, probably it's it has more to do with you just building us up to be more like your son. So in that, Father, we welcome trials. Not because we want to go through pain, but because we want to be more like your son. So as we go through trials, Father, may we pray. May we look to you. If there's sin, may we confess it. Uh, if there's not sin, Father, may we come to you and say, God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to do in me to make me more like your son? And then, Father... Make it clear to us that you will forgive and you will deliver. And as you forgive and as you deliver, allow us to rejoice and to praise you and to worship you for what you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen.